Heavenly Father, we come before you once again, assembled together on a Sunday morning, praying that you will accept the worship of our songs. And Lord, that during the special, that you would allow our hearts to be drawn closer and prepared for the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that the sermon this morning would challenge us to understand things that we know in the Bible. We've never preached anything new here, just what's written down. But Lord, we have such a hard time obeying it and keeping your words. And Lord, we're asking for you to strengthen us. That when we assemble together and sing these songs, that our worship would be acceptable in in thy sight. And Lord, as we leave this place, that our worship would not just stop in church, but would follow us every hour of the days until we assemble together together again. Lord, we want our lives to be lived in worship to you. We ask that you would work that that may be accomplished. And of course, we understand, Lord, that we never assemble together without there being some people here that do not know you as their Savior. And Lord, we cannot work in hearts, but you can. And again, we ask that you would do that today, that we would surrender to you what is yours, whether it be our souls in salvation or obedience to the things that are just simply in your word, that we may live and bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I want you to take your songbook and turn to Exodus chapter 34. We need to turn the pulpit mic off there, if you would. Exodus chapter 34. And... uh, Then uh, take another finger and put it in Revelation chapter 5, chapters 4 and 5, and we'll be going there in just a few moments. But uh, on Thursday night, we've been doing a series on uh, the doctrines of the Bible, we'll call it theology, uh, the study of God, the study of His teachings, and uh, uh, we got touching on Revelation chapter 4 and 5, and I said, you know, I just got to preach on that Sunday morning. And where we're going to start is Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 8. And I'd like to, before we read the actual text, I'd like to just set the context of the the historical events that surround and shape this passage and why it is so pivotal in the Scripture God had brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. This is what we call the Passover. They came through the Red Sea and uh, saw the destruction of the most powerful army in the face of the earth at their time, the Egyptian army. And God brought them into uh, what is now the Sinai Peninsula. And as they were... Walking through there, they had many different problems. They ran out of water. They uh, ran out of food. They came to uh, a place that's called the Mount of God. And there they camped. And God called Moses up into the top of the mountain. And he gave him 
the commandments of God. Now, the Ten Commandments, we hear a lot about those. Those were the covenant, uh, maybe a, a, another word that may be a little easier for us today, or the preamble. They, they were the summary of all the laws of God. I mean, in your Old Testament, all Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're, they're called the books of the law because in those books are given to us all the laws that God gave Moses on top of Mount Sinai. And according to the best count, there are 613 laws. That'd be an awful lot to remember now, wouldn't it? Uh, last time I heard anybody made a count... In the United States, in the Federal Codex of the Laws of the United States, there are two and a half million laws. That makes God's laws pretty simple. I like the way one preacher put it. He said, we have two and a half laws in the federal statutes of the United States government that doesn't count all the local laws and all the regulations. I imagine New York City's got to have at least that many on their own. And yet, every one of them is trying to help you keep the Ten Commandments. If you stop and think about it, that's, that's a fairly true statement. Well, at the very time God was writing with his finger in the stone tablets the Ten Commandments, at the base of the mountain... The nation of Israel was there, and not everybody, by the way, but a group of people came to Aaron and said, Moses is gone, he's disappeared, he's been up there for 40 days, nobody took any food up to him, nobody took any water, he's got to be dead. 40 days is long enough. He said, make us gods. And Aaron, he is one of those... I don't know what you would call it. Uh, the, the proper word is an anomaly, a mystery, a contradiction of everything. I mean, Aaron was just that person that he was a mess. And so Aaron makes a golden calf. And apparently Aaron knew enough about the pagan styles of worship in Egypt and uh, other places that he instructed them how to worship this false god. And so when God told Moses, you get down off the mountain and get to the people because they've corrupted themselves, they go in and they're dancing around a golden calf. Moses is holding in his hands the very laws of God. And in his great contradiction, his Anger over the foolishness and the sin and the blasphemy of the nation of Israel. He takes those commandments and he just throws them down and shatters them at the base of the mountain. He gets down and lots of things happen. 3,000 men are put to death because of worshiping the false uh, the golden calf, Moses grounds that calf to dust and sprinkles it on the water and, and makes the people drink that bitter water with the ashes in it from their uh, God that they worshipped. And, and Moses goes to God and prays one of the most incredible prayers in all the Bible. I want you to look, look at me uh, with me in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 31. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, 
Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and there's a dash in your Bible there. That's because the text demands a pause, a stop. Moses couldn't even begin to say the next sentence. And if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. Do you you get what Moses is praying here? He says, God, if you can't forgive them, don't forgive me either. Tell you, God gave Moses a heart for the children of Israel. Amen? Now look what God's answer was. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. And we go on and God in verse, in chapter 33 begins to give uh, the directions on how to set up the tabernacle and to make a place. God granted forgiveness to those who are willing to seek it, as God always has. God is the God of forgiveness. And in answer to his prayer, Moses goes back to God in chapter 33 in verse 18. And he says, well, look at verse 17. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And he, Moses said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Here was Moses' prayer. He said, God, I want to be closer to you than I am right now. You know, if we could, if, if you want a solution to what is bothering you in your life, I don't care if it's the economy, I don't care what it is, what, what you need, the answer to your question is a better understanding of God. You say, but you don't know what they're doing to me at work. Uh, the answer to that problem is a better under is you getting a better understanding of God. But pastor, don't you care what's going on in Washington D.C.? Yeah, the answer is they need to get a better understanding of who God is. But I don't think they want to. So what am I going to do? Ask God to give me a better understanding of who He is. Because you see, I can't change them. But I am desperately responsible before God for me. And you for yourself. And if we would take care of this, and this is what Moses was praying for. He says, God, even though God had spoken to him face to face as a man speaketh to his friend, even though God had written out those laws and given it to him. Moses said, he understood something here. He said, Lord, I don't know you as I ought to. I don't know you as I should. I don't understand who you really are as much as I need to. And by the way, that that prayer can never be fully answered until you get to heaven and live with God. 
But God does want you to know him better. In fact, he explained to Moses, he said, I can't show you my glory. If I were to show you my glory, you would die. Because you are a sinful human being. You can't comprehend it all. You know, that's the problem I have with so much religion. Is they have a God that is absolutely understandable by man. They have a God that's comprehensible by man. I mean, you can, you can figure out what your God would do and how he would do it. I mean, it makes perfect sense. I mean, there's a God out there that he, he is cruel and vindictive and he will hurt you. But if you go talk to his mother, she'll change his attitude. Now, many of you used to attend a church that taught you that very thing, didn't you? I'm not trying to be mean or, or criticize the Catholic and Orthodox religions. But I'm trying to get you to understand that the God that they paint is not the God that's in this book called the Bible. He doesn't need help. And we're going to see that in just a moment. But I want you to get something here. Because if we don't get this, the rest of the sermon's not going to make any sense. Moses had more interaction with God. More personal interaction than any other human being ever has had in history. In, in the Old Testament, till we get to the disciples of Jesus Christ... Moses talked to God. He saw those tables of stone and the finger of God put the the Hebrew letters in that stone that gave to him the Ten Commandments. God described to him all of what needed to be done to build the tabernacle and all the attending ceremonies and ordinances. And as God is giving Moses the second set of tables, and as God is giving him all of this, he answers Moses' prayer to see his glory. And that's the verses we're going to read. Let's start in verse 5 of Exodus chapter 34. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name. Of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Now this was God revealing his glory. He told Moses, we didn't read it, he said, I'm going to put you 
in a little hole of the rock here, and I'm going to put my hand over you, and I'm going to walk by. And then I'm going to take my hand off, and I'm going to let you see my hinder parts. I'm going to let you see just the edge of my glory, because that's all you can handle. And as Moses was there on Mount Sinai with the second set of tablets, which God would then write, notice how he started. He started by proclaiming the name of the Lord. Now, if you've ever run into one of our friendly Jehovah's Witnesses, the first question I ask you, what's God's name? And I always just like to tweak people like that. And I said, which one do you want? He only has one name. I said, not my Bible. My Bible, he has hundreds of names. Because no matter how many names we give him, we can't describe him. We can't fathom him. He is bigger than you can imagine. But he says... The Lord. Now, in your King James Bible, and one of the reasons I recommend and only use the King James Bible in English is because they were careful enough to put the differences of terms. If you just had a concordance and looked up the word Lord in your Bible, you're going to find thousands and thousands of times that it's used. But there are two different spellings of the word Lord in your King James Bible. There's L, capital L, little o, little r, little d. And then there's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Now, if you look in your Bible, when he says, the Lord, it's all in capitals. Now, the reason why that is there is because that when in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses asked, God says, what is thy name? Who, who am I going to tell Israel as he was going into the land of Egypt? God said, I am that I am. You say, that sounds rather cryptic. No. You see, no one else in the universe can claim that title. You can say... I am what I am. I am the descendant of my parents. Because there was a time when you weren't. But when God says, I am that I am, He is saying, I am the eternal. Eternal, self-existent one. Meaning, I had no beginning of days. There was no time when I was not just as I am at this moment. And there will be no time in the future that I will not be just as I am at this moment. I had no beginning. I have no end. And we have to say all of that just trying to describe and understand those words. And what our translators did when they put our Bible from the Hebrew into the English was they chose to take all capital letters, and this is 
the Hebrew word Jehovah or I am that I am. And so as we look in our Bible, the first thing God says about himself is the Lord. Now, that little word T-H-E is probably the most ignored word in the English language. Yet it is extremely important. You see, uh, to just simply illustrate it, poor illustration, but this is the Bible I'm holding in my hand. Do you know why? Because I'm only holding one Bible in my hand. But this is a Bible that I own. Being a preacher, I own lots of Bibles. By the way, every one of them is the same version. Uh, I don't own other versions to compare. I don't believe in that. I believe in using this one, and I study it. And, and uh, But I have a Bible upstairs that I can read. I have one that I preach out of right here, uh, uh, and some different ones that were given to me. I've collected Bibles from family members as they've passed away over the years, and it's just a treasure to hold that Bible and remember that person who had it and sometimes go through and read some of the things they wrote down in the side notes. But... The Lord means there are no others. The self-existent one. And then he uses the title, The Lord God. Now the word God is primarily used as a curse word in modern English. And that is a travesty. And it is an indictment against a people who have left the truth of God. When you get into trouble, don't say, oh my God. It's not his fault. He is not the causer of trouble. He is God. Now, the word God simply means the highest being. That there are none others. The word by definition means there only could be one. We have many gods, little g, little o, little d, s. Those are people who are reverend and worshipped. And I'll tell you, it's amazing. Uh, Years ago, we were looking for Brother Dice, a place to meet in over in Jamaica. And we walked into this place and the... um, um, the uh, uh, the rabbi that actually had sold us this building, we had run into him just on the streets there in Jamaica, and he said, hey, go over here and go over there. There's an old synagogue that they're using for a different thing. He said, maybe you can rent from them. Well, I didn't know. He was joking with us. We went over there, and it was one of those uh, Indian temples. And, and we are going, you want to go in here? Uh, I don't know. Well, let's let's just do it. So we went, Brother Dice and I went in, and it was weird. They had a picture of the, uh, I believe it's the Hindu god with all the arms sitting there. And they had taken the picture of that and glued it onto a foam board. And then, not nearly as skillfully as it might have been done, they cut the head off of the statue. 
of the picture. So here you have this foam board of this multi-armed being sitting there cross-legged, and they cut the head off, and then behind it they had taped another piece of foam board and stuck the picture of the Karishna or the guru that they worshipped who had died in like 1914 and just stuck his face on the head of that image. Just made you go, whoo! And we, and they worshipped it. They had several bowls of rice sitting out in front of it and incense burning to to this image that they had made. And and I, I looked at Brother Dice and he looked at me and he said, I don't care if they want to rent us. We're in, let's get out of here. You see, there are many things called gods in this world. People will worship anything. But here as God is proclaiming Himself, He says, The Lord, Jehovah in Hebrew, I am that I am God. He said, There are none others that can be compared unto Me. There are none others that are close to Me. There are none others that deserve this title that I use. And then... Here's what he says. Merciful and gracious. The Lord. The Lord God. Merciful and gracious. Now we've been over the definition of mercy many times, so I'm just going to abbreviate it this morning. Mercy is that which is given by the victor. To the vanquished. Amen? Mercy is given by the victor to the defeated who is now willing to admit that they have been defeated and surrender their authority to the victor. That's how you get mercy. There are many examples, not many examples in human history. There are some. Uh, Probably the greatest that I can think of is at the end of World War II. Japan was defeated. They chose to receive mercy. And the American people gave it to them. And arguably, uh, until recent, very recent history, since 1945, the most powerful nation in all of the Far East was the country of Japan uh, until the recent ascendancy of China. It's an amazing thing. They received mercy. Where, what was the pattern of that? Were the Romans merciful to the peoples they conquered? Uh, how about the Greeks before them? Uh, the Persians? Uh, was Nebuchadnezzar full of mercy? How about Attila the Hun? You say, preacher, you're getting ridiculous. Yes. I want to challenge you that there's no pattern for showing mercy to a defeated foe. Until this book came into the warp and woof and history of a people. They got that idea from somebody from somewhere. And it's because God introduced Himself as merciful 
and gracious. You know, the word gracious is absolutely without meaning in modern English. Uh, I want to read to you the definition of, of gracious. Characterized by or exhibiting kindness or courtesy, kindly, benevolent, courteous, now rare. Uh, except with some notion of sense of definition number four, which is condescendingly kind, indulgent, beneficent to inferiors, now only of very exalted personages. Do you get that? I mean, if you want to hear the name gracious in modern English, you have to look up Martha Stork. Gracious living and all of this. No, that's not the word. The word is a superior being inordinately kind and generous to an inferior. That's what the word gracious means. You see, that's why God is full of grace. He is the superior. You see, grace and mercy are so interwoven that they're used together all the way through your Bible. God is merciful, but He's also gracious. He's inordinate. That means beyond the scope of normal, beyond what would even be reasonable in His mercy. Because He is the Lord. He is the Lord God. He is merciful and gracious. And what does it say next? Long-suffering. Do I need to define the word long-suffering today? I'll tell you, if you, if you know anything at all, just break the word up. Long. With, that, with a long duration. Suffering. Willing to endure pain. God is willing to put up with us. Could we get an amen on that? I mean, God, as He describes Himself, says, I am the Lord. There is none other beside me. I am the only one that is self-existent. I am the Lord God. There is no other gods that are to be compared to me. I'm merciful and gracious. I'm long-suffering. And I am abundant in goodness and truth. You know what the first things that people think about God today? And and I wish I had a dollar for every person that said this. But God is so judgmental. I I can never walk the the narrow way because I'm afraid of what God would do to me. Uh, The Bible only has one title for a person who would believe that. It's called a fool. One who refuses to believe in God. Because God is merciful and gracious. He's long-suffering. He's abundant in goodness and in truth. God is desirous. Look what it says here in verse 7. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God wants to forgive. 
You know, that is something that is not in. Well, how shall we say this? This is not something that is understood today. You know, when we talk about forgiving, we'll say, yeah, I I forgive you, it's okay. Well, number one, it's not okay. And number two, you do not possess as a human being within you what it takes to forgive another human being. If you're going to forgive, you see, the biblical principle of forgiveness always deals with payment. That's what all the sacrifices were about. There were sacrifices that had to be made. There was remuneration that had to be made before a person could go before a holy God and expect forgiveness. God said He's reserved His forgiveness. He is keeping That mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity. Why did God have to keep that mercy? Because Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet, my friend. God was holding His mercy in reserve. It was already accredited to your account, if you were saved, in God's bookkeeping. But Moses was living right here on earth at this time and God was trying to explain to him things haven't been fulfilled yet, so I'm holding it. See, that's why the Old Testament word was atonement and the New Testament word is redemption. Atonement means the rolling back. Redemption is the purchase price paid. And even here on Mount Sinai, God cannot reveal himself to Moses and answer his question to show his glory without alluding to what Jesus Christ was going to do on the cross. Because it's all connected, my friend. And if I don't hurry up, I'm not going to get through the introduction this morning. But let's read the rest part of verse 7. And that will by no means clear the guilty. This idea of just saying, oh, it's okay. God, is that's not in your Bible, my friend. It says, and by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and the fourth generation. God says, listen, I am going to exact Judgment for sin, and that sin is going to be passed from generation. How many of you here today know four generations of your family? I mean, stop and think about that. God said, I'm not going to only get you. I'm going to take care of those people because sin has a way of replicating. You know, psychology has made an amazing discovery that the sins of the parents affect the children. I wonder where they came up with that one. It's been in the Bible thousands of years before anybody was even smart enough to write the word psychology. I am so sick of these people who think they can understand the human mind without understanding God first. What God has said in His Word. 
But I want you to understand that before God talks about judgment, He talks about forgiveness. Because God wants to forgive. Why? Because He is the Lord God that's merciful and gracious. He is long-suffering. He is abundant in goodness and truth. Now I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. And Moses' response as we turn to Revelation chapter 4 was simply to fall on his face. He could not look anymore or take any more information in. He just fell on his face and worshipped. And God said, that's, that's all I can give you today, Moses. If you want, you want to be closer to me, work on this first. The Lord, the Lord God, gracious and merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and in truth, the God that forgives, but the God that will judge sin even to the fourth generation. I'll tell you what, it's a bad business to fight against God. Because He'll live longer than you do. Amen. Now we get to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And John, the beloved disciple of Jesus Christ, is on the island of Patmos there. He is exiled. He is away from every other source of human contact. And the Lord appears to him and gives him a look into heaven. And verse 1, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee the things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat on the throne... To look upon was to look upon like a jasper. That is a a translucent reddish stone. And a sardine stone. And round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. I'm sorry. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And so... Uh, and then it talks about the four and twenty elders and the four beasts and, and all of the things that were around the throne. In verse 5 it says, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire before, burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. We come down to verse 9, And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before his throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Now, I wish we had another hour, but I don't know that you could endure that long, and I don't know my voice would last that long. But the simple truth is, we wouldn't even be started going through the correlations between Exodus 34 and Revelation 4 and 5. It talks often about who liveth forever and ever in these two chapters. 
Uh, could I challenge you that would be the Greek way of saying, I am that I am. He that liveth forever and ever. There, there is an agreement there. And, and the, the fact that there is none that is comparable unto him and that he is full of mercy and full of goodness. And it says everything was created for his pleasure. That he was trying to, that he did things in the best and most wonderful way. And we get to chapter 1 of verse 5. And it says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and without and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Now in the hand of this being that sat on the throne, John's attention and all the attention of every being in heaven that was there is drawn to this book being held in the right hand. And that book is sealed with seven seals. That means it was wrapped seven different times so that the book could not be opened without breaking those seals. Uh, In the Roman days, they would take a piece of leather... Uh, or parchment, and they would wrap it around something, and they would melt some wax to seal it, to hold it together. It was before the days of stick glue and all those kinds of things. And, and it would hold that. And if you disturbed it in the least, the paper would let loose, and whoever came to investigate would know that somebody tampered with it. The penalty for breaking a Roman seal was crucifixion upside down. They nailed you or impaled you on a cross upside down and left you hang there because they wanted people to know, don't mess with the authority of Rome. There was one on Jesus' tomb, by the way. Uh, Nobody got crucified for that one because the soldiers ran away like scared little girly boys Because one angel appeared unto them. And well, they should have. And well, we would do if we had happened to be there. But this is in heaven, my friend. And that book is sealed seven times. And they make a search. And I love to bring this out, brought this out Thursday night. I hope you don't mind hearing it again. But... They looked in heaven above, they looked in earth below, they looked beneath the earth, and they couldn't find anyone who was worthy. And John was standing there beholding this search, and the fact that every searcher would come back and say, none is found, and, and, and it just overcame him, and he began to weep and bawl like a little baby at the sight. And one of the elders kind of went, stop it! We all know the answer! Look here and read with me if you would. Revelation chapter 4. Now I've got to get back there. Excuse me. Revelation chapter 5, verse 4. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open the book and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not! Behold! The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, now you got to get this. Where does it say that this lamb appeared? Read it out loud with me. In the midst of the throne. 
Now, do you get that? What you have is a throne that was set there. And there was one sitting on the throne. And around the throne were these four mighty beasts. The Bible calls them cherubim. And around them were the 24 elders, we believe, representing the saved saints of Israel and of the, ch- uh, of the church, the Old Testament and New Testament saints all around there. And in the middle. What's in the middle? The throne. Who's sitting on the throne? I am that I am. And yet in the midst of the throne appears the Lamb as if it had been slain. Now I've thought a lot about that. If I could get what's in my head out on a piece of paper that you could see, it would probably scare the living daylights out of you. And me too. It's going to be a fearful sight. But just here is God sitting on the throne and in the midst of the throne. We have a the closest thing that I could come up How many of you have ever seen a double exposure picture? Where you take one picture. Uh, in the old cameras, you used to be able to stop the film and then take another picture on top of the first picture. That's what you have here. Why? Because the Lamb is the I Am. You say, how do you say that? Well, let's read verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the world, all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. You say, how did that happen if he was in the midst of the throne? All I can tell you is, if you had to describe what John just described, that's the best way to describe it. Uh, it. It's an amazing thing. The Lamb was there, and He took that book out of His hand. The rest of the book of Revelation is about the opening of those seals and God's judgment. You see, all those people that are around the throne are those that have been forgiven. The people that are on the earth at this point are the people who have not. And just as God revealed himself on Mount Sinai, uh, keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and sins and transgressions, he in no way is going to clear the guilty. And Revelations chapter 6 through 19 are about the pouring out of God's judgment upon this world. But I want you to look at verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and crowns and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And hast made unto us our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders. And the number of them was ten thousands times times ten thousand and thousands of thousands. 
saying with loud, a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing in every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them. Heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down before him and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. His names, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb has it as if it had been slain. His attributes, he is in the midst of the throne. He is worshipped as God, the same worship that they give to God in chapter 4, they give to the Lamb in chapter 5. They pray, offer the prayers of the saints before the Lamb, and they sing. Does that sound strangely familiar to you? Did we sing some songs this morning? Did we pray? Uh, Are we going to have a prayer meeting tonight? You see, God revealed Himself in answer to Moses' prayer. And God has revealed Himself in His Word to you and I today. And one of the things that was in this Worship was an expectation of service. It said, Thou hast made us kings and priests, and we shall reign with Him. There are things that God expects us to do. Now, I want to challenge you. We have not gotten to Revelation chapter 4 and 5 yet in God's prophetic timetable. It is still yet future, but God expects you and I to respond As Moses did, what did he do? He fell on his face and worshipped. You know, it, it wouldn't hurt for us once in a while to just fall on our face before God and worship. You know, it's kind of why we have an altar here in the front. And by the way, just so nobody misunderstands, uh, these steps in the middle here, they're just as much a part of the altar as the pieces on the side. Amen. Uh, don't feel like just because the side section is full, you have to go over there. Come here in the middle. Fill it up. That's what this place is for. It's for me to recognize that I don't know God as well as I ought to. That I need to get a better understanding of His holiness and His greatness and His goodness and His forgiveness and His mercy. How many times do we go through life When we make a mistake and we say, well, I know God will forgive me, but I won't forgive me. What a bunch of rubbish, man. You you can't get more foolish in your reasoning than that. If God is willing to forgive you, who are you to refuse it? God did not intend for us to live in guilt and despair and worry and all of these things. He intended for us to live 
in His goodness, in His mercy, in His long-suffering. Why would God put up with us? Uh, There's only one word that answers that question. 1 John 4, verse 8. God is love. He wants us to understand what love is. And I want to challenge you, you cannot know true love until you understand a little bit about God. You see, you and I, we need to recognize that there is one God revealed in Scripture. He has chosen to help us understand a little bit about Him By revealing himself to us, as is pictured here in Revelation 4 and 5, we have he that sits upon the throne, we have the lamb as it had been slain, and the seven lamps, which are the spirits of God, which run throughout the the whole earth. 1 John 5, 7 puts it, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. say, can you explain that? No. Say, but we believe this, Pastor. You've preached on this so many times. Why are you doing it today? Uh, Because I got my mind started on Thursday night as I was doing the lesson on uh, the uh, tribulation and all of the things that will come. And I I just felt that the Lord wanted me to preach on these verses today. You see, we have a response that God expects. Moses fell on his face and worshipped. In Revelation, they fell on their faces. They cast their crowns before the throne. They worshipped. They sang a song. Now, we cannot cast crowns before the throne because if you take a look around, nobody has any on their head today. All right? But, let me tell you what we can do. We can pray. Uh, By the way, that's what prayer meeting's about tonight. We can sing songs. You know, there's not one word in the Bible about singing in perfect harmony. Now, I'll be honest with you. It's better when that is done. But that's why we have congregational singing. Because when you have a group of this many people, it doesn't matter what you sound like. So just sing it anyway. Some of you remember the old days when there weren't as many of us and Peter could be heard above everybody, but uh, that's no longer the case. And and so what we want to do is we want to worship him. But should our worship be precluded to just Sunday morning? No. No. In heaven, it's going to be a continual thing, my friend. It says in Philippians 2.8, talking about Jesus, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what? Our response is to worship Him now. There is none, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You know, that's the first act that God will accept from a human being is believing on the name of Jesus Christ for your salvation. You know, people have often said, religion is the problem in this world. And I would say we just need to add an adjective there. False religion is the problem of this world. Because true religion As one of the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, asked Jesus, what are the two greatest commandments? What was his answer? To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Let me read it make sure I got it printed here. It says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Do you think we could solve all the wars if people would just listen to what Jesus said were the two great commandments? Say, yeah, I I believe in doing unto others before they have a chance to do unto you. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says to love thy neighbor as thyself. I want to challenge you, not one person in this room can do that without first worshiping the God of heaven and receiving His mercy and His grace and His forgiveness and His love. You see, then I'll have something to give to my neighbor. But I'll challenge you, you'll run out of you real fast. But you'll never run out of God. Because he is the Lord, the Lord God. He is merciful and gracious. He's abundant in goodness and truth. You see, to know him makes me understand I don't need to know anything more about me. I just need to fall on my face and surrender my will to His. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Romans 8.29 Romans 12.12 And be not conformed to this world. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God gave his law to Moses. That same God sits upon the throne in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. There are no others. He is good, he is merciful, and he is desirous to forgive. But he will only forgive through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
Because forgiveness is not just swishing it away and pretending it didn't happen. That's foolishness. Forgiveness is the payment of the debt. And only God could pay the debt. God's response was Jesus Christ. God incarnate. God in the flesh. Because He wants you and I to understand a little bit more about Him. I don't care what the question is today. You say, well, I'm not sure that I need to. You'll just fill in the blank. Get baptized. Become a member of the church. Be really strict with my kids and keep them out of worldly influences. Be careful what they watch and what goes into their minds and who their friends are and all these things. You, you can say what you want. But see, my response was to fall down and worship Him. It really doesn't matter what I think. It's what He thinks. And if you want to know what He thinks, it's all written down right here. And all God's people said. Heavenly Father, we come before You today. And Lord, we ask that You would help us to respond. As Moses did. As those that are saved did in the book of, will do in Revelations chapter 4 and 5. Lord, as the Apostle Paul did on the road to Damascus. As the disciples did with their lives after they had met the resurrected Lord. Lord, as numberless millions down through history have simply surrendered to the words of God as printed in His book called the Bible, we ask that You would help us to respond to You in true worship. That we would accept Your mercy and Your graciousness, Your long-suffering, Your goodness, Your truth your forgiveness, that we would not be a recipient of your judgment. Lord, help us to live for you in these last days. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. The hymn of invitation. Three hundred and.